You're listening to Sala by Abigail Washburn, a Patagonia music benefit track for the China branch of Jane Goodall Institute's Roots and Shoots. Introducing Patagonia Music, exclusive songs from your favorite bands to raise money for environmental activism. Search Patagonia Music on iTunes or download the free Patagonia Music iPhone app and you can stream the Dirtbag Diaries wherever you roam. Patagonia Music. Buy a song, benefit the environment. Learn more at patagonia.com music. With additional support from Kuat Racks and New Belgium Brewing. When the fall weather finally turned cooler in California, I'd start checking out books of scary stories from the library. Tucked safely amongst my blankets, I'd read one after another. I loved the creeping sensation that would slowly slither up my neck, the shallowness of my breath as I reached the story's end. I simultaneously believed and didn't believe the stories. They were silly, too far-fetched to have actually happened. But what if there was even just a bit of truth in them? I grew up in an old house that creaked and popped at night. Doors would open unexpectedly. Cold air drafts that flickered candle flames seemed to appear and disappear without a predictable rhythm. These things only bothered me when I really started to think about what was making them happen. Otherwise, it was my house. Safe, comfortable, ordinary. But when the Christmas tree fell over three times one year, my sister and I sought another explanation. The simplest one, of course. We had a resident ghost. It was friendly, but sometimes a little clumsy. Our ghost was something to be proud of. Our friends would ask whether there had been any recent sightings or incidents, and we'd report the random house foibles that we attributed to our ghost. So when my sister had five friends sleep over two weeks before Halloween, the house ghost was an obvious conversation topic, since the girls were getting themselves into a near tizzy over whether they'd see the ghost that night. My friend Katie and I decided to help them out. We'd write a note. A note from the ghost. Letters scrawled in a shaky hand and the paper crumpled to make it look old. Then we placed it where the girls were sure to find it. Squeals of delight echoed through the downstairs and they raced to tell us what they'd found. They bubbled with excitement as they wondered what the note meant and whether there'd be more contact. My mom encouraged them to write the ghost back, meanwhile giving Katie and I a knowing look. But how could they write the ghost that they didn't know its name? They scowled and thought. One of the girls then said, I think it's Lila. It was seized on. Yes, of course, Lila. Now our ghost had a name. My mom gave Katie and I permission to carry on the charade, and we took to creating authentic-looking notes. Paper dipped in water so the ink would run, edges torn and burned with sections missing. And the girls played their part, giving us more details to build the story. She had died. No, murdered. Nope, too scary. Died. In front of the house, we dripped red food coloring on a note and wrote that Lila wanted to show them where it happened. They raced outside and found the next note. They looked towards the peak of the house and saw the attic space vent. That's where she lives, claimed another. In a few hours, we collectively created the story of Lila. 
Whenever the story would turn towards scary, lighter details would be added effortlessly. She was nine. It had happened over a hundred years ago. She wasn't trying to scare them. She just wanted a playmate. For Katie, my sister, and me, it was a story seeded from part reality that grew into a greater tale. But when Lila said goodnight, with some encouragement from Mom, we realized the tale may have grown beyond us. Lila didn't seem so benignly make-believe. As the house creaked, the girls' imaginations continued to reel independently without the safety of the group. So much so that one of the girls fled to the safety of her own home and bed. Did Lila really inhabit our house? Even though I had been intrinsic in the creation of her, I sometimes wondered. The seed remained. And when the tree fell over again, we implicated Lila, not the cat. And when I was alone in our house, standing at the top of the stairs, listening to a door downstairs rhythmically tap the wall behind it, I pleaded with Lila to please stop. And when she wouldn't, I willed my limbs to move and mustered the courage to slowly creep down the stairs, only to find the tapping had finally stopped after ten incessant minutes. We speak of her less these days, but even 25 years later, I think her spirit still resides in the house. Today, we bring you scary stories from Sarah Porterfield and Jeremy Allen. They'll make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. You'll try to shutter them off. But the seed, the seed will remain. And isn't that what scary stories are all about? I'm Becca Cajal, and you're listening to Tales of Terror. I struggle with whether or not I should tell this story. This hesitancy may be my overactive imagination trying to scare me and keep me from a peaceful sleep at night in the backcountry. Or it may be because it's true, as there are other witnesses who can testify to its terror. Two years ago, I was instructing on a 16-day river rafting course with a group of teenagers on the Green River. By day eight, the kids were ready for their solo, a 36-hour, on-their-own-with-just-the-essentials experience. For the instructors, solo is a time to relax, gorge ourselves on secret chocolate stashes we keep hidden from the kids, and have a much-needed break from hanging out with teenagers. After answering the innumerable questions about what they could and couldn't bring, the kids were finally spread out in their solo sites up a side canyon, and the other instructors and I fell into a sound sleep as soon as the sun set. The next day, one of my co-instructors, Will, and I decided to check in on the kids and then hike up to a reputedly Grand Canyon-like grotto a few miles from the river. After an hour of bushwhacking through the overgrown wash, we found what looked like a short canyon with interesting prospects. We turned out of the main canyon, ducked under the mulberry trees, and started walking up canyon. As soon as we crossed through those trees, the hair on the back of my neck stood up. I looked around uneasily. We had seen signs of mountain lions the previous few days, 
and I attributed my sudden nervousness to entering what looked like a prime cougar hideout. Within a few hundred yards, we reached a dry fall where the short canyon boxed up at a sheer cliff, blocking travel any further up the canyon from where we were. With no other way to access the upper canyon besides learning to climb like Chris Sharma, we were isolated. We scrambled up on a bus-sized boulder to sit and enjoy the grotto we decided we were looking for. The prickling on the back of my neck hadn't gone away, but I told myself it was silly. If there were any big cats around, we must have scared them away by now. Will and I sat back to back on the boulder and chatted for a while about the trip. I mentioned how lucky we were to spend time in one of the most remote places in the country. In the half-second pause before Will could reply came the single, most terrifying moment of my life. From above the sheer dry fall came the sound of a man, or something man-like, clearing its throat. Will and I stiffened. We could feel each other's fear radiate through our thin cotton river shirts. After a few seconds pause, he asked, what was that? I replied that I didn't know, but that I thought we should get the hell out of there. We walked quickly, pretending we didn't want to flat out run, out of the creepy canyon and back to camp. Once there, we laughed it off with the other instructors as a trick of canyon acoustics or that the long, hot summer must really be wearing on us. I was all too eager to pass that experience off as something explainable, to forget the goosebumps and eerie canyon and that most human of sounds in a place where no one should have been. Until the next morning. After collecting our students from their solo sites, Will walked up to me during breakfast with a gaggle of wide-eyed students behind him. One of them had asked Will why he had tried to scare him the evening before, wearing all black with a long black wig and roaming around talking to the students. More voices chimed in, corroborating each other's stories. A third of the students had claimed to see a human-like figure dressed all in black or covered in black hair. Many had seen it roaming the canyon around dusk, after Will and I had passed through on our way back to camp. One kid had woken up in the middle of the night to find it standing over him. Some said they saw it talking to another student across the canyon, but that student would have no recollection of a conversation. Will and I stared at each other, confusion and fear flickering across our faces. Questions flooded my mind. Had whatever we heard in that side canyon followed us down here? Did we have an encounter that we couldn't recall? What the hell had we heard and what had they seen? The kids begged us to tell them what we thought it was. None of us really wanted to tell them the stories we knew. Stories of disturbed spirits, of ultimate evil, of things that shouldn't really be talked about, but sometimes you do anyway. We told them some of what we knew, and at first they shared this excitedly amongst each other, wanting to hear more. Eventually, though, once the sun went down, a tangible fear of what might be beyond the halos of our headlamps settled over our campsite. For the rest of the trip, we all slept in a close knot, and though the sky was clear, we huddled in tents and under tarps whose zippers and thin nylon we thought would somehow protect us from whatever lurked outside. I don't know what you've been I don't get out much these days. To this day, I still sometimes have trouble sleeping in the desert at night, and I make an extravagant effort to avoid camping at that side canyon. The desert, that I love and call home, had revealed a darker side. 
the side that you never really want to believe exists. I've had more of these experiences than I'd like. I've seen death and destruction and felt the presence of something not human, not kind. We were lucky then, I think. We saw and heard something. Something that is believed to be a portent of evil and misfortune and, this time, got away with only the memory of goosebumps. Sometimes it's hard to separate a seed of fear from the growing tangle of possibility that merges in your head. And sometimes, that seed is very tangible. A spine-tingling story from Jeremy Allen. It was kind of another, another experience in a string of um, previous experiences and stuff that happened in the future that surround this one area. Um, in the Upper Baker Lake drainage. It scared the shit out of me. So around the year 2000, I was living in the small town of Marble Mount, Washington in uh, the North Cascades National Park. And my girlfriend at the time, Jeannie, was a uh, geologist working for the park. And I just started um, guiding out of a guide service in Bellingham, Washington. And it's it's a great place to be in the spring months and in the, in the, the summer months, but in the winter, you're definitely marooned. And so I was poking around trying to find places to ski tour and in the area. And I'd been um, going out kind of in this pretty remote area between Mount Baker and Mount Shuxon quite a lot. And there's a kind of a burly little switchbacky forest service road. And I rallied up that for a bit, but then quickly got bogged down and parked a truck and started skiing. And uh, clearly no one had been up there for um, a number of weeks. There was no tracks, ski or foot, foot traffic. Um, not really a place that anyone but climbers or skiers tends to go. I skied up a road for maybe an hour or so, and then I started to go cross-country into this small mountain range, kind of working my way up through this mature forest. And I had my head down, and I was, you know, I had pretty ambitious plans that day. I think I don't really remember exactly how far I intended to go, but I wanted to try to poke out into the kind of the western um, flanks of Mount Blum. It's a significant uh, distance to travel. And I was touring kind of through this forested area. So I was kind of concentrating on just what was in front of my skis. And then um, at one point, I remember kind of just feeling a little bit tense and uneasy. And I and I looked up and I had this kind of like an auditory hallucination almost where you're, you know, if you're in a movie, the soundtrack would just go wah, 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 wah. 
And all around me were all these things hanging from the trees, like tinsel and silverware and sticks, like big sticks, small sticks, um, moss, like hung up with twine. There were some dolls, like Raggedy Ann dolls, really ragged looking, you know, big bones, not chicken bones or anything like that. You know, one bone that it was, it could have been an animal bone. I don't really know what a femur and a human looks like, but big bones. I looked up and I kind of spun around and I stopped and I did a 360 and there was this wah, 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 wah. And then the light was kind of shining through the trees and it was picking up all these reflections and I just instantly freaked out. I started to rip my skins off. And then I stopped and I remember thinking, what the hell is this? And I, I took a closer look and the area was extensive. It was, I mean, I'm not talking about a couple trees. and you know, hundreds of things. I mean, it would have taken a group of people a really long time to set this scene up. And I just decided that I didn't want to keep going. So I just ripped my skins off and I hightailed out of there. And the whole time I just felt like I was being watched. So I don't know what it was. I think probably it was some sort of pagan ritual site. It looked like it had been there for a while, which kind of freaked me out because how that could be, you know, something that extensive, how it could be that in that place for so long, I think is really odd. Yeah, I'm not sure. So this is probably two years after, two or three years after this, uh, the Baker Lake uh, headwaters are more remote parts of the Western North, North Cascades. And my partner and another staff member from the park have been working in the Baker, upper Baker Lake area, and they were on... I think it was a three to four day trip where they were, they went up to the head of the lake in a canoe and then they had waders and they were doing a lot of landform mapping um, in the aquatic zone and then deep up into the head of the, the river. And so they, they spent a lot of time bushwhacking and traveling like through water. They went up about a day, probably like 15 miles or so. And then made a camp, and the next day they kept going. And at some point during the morning, uh, apparently they encountered this sand bank and kind of a gravel bar area, and they found two graves dug into the sand, gravestone made out of sticks, I believe, and rocks um, kind of mounted over you know, big human-sized graves. And 
they told me that I, I heard the story, you know, when they got back, um, that they felt like they had been watched this whole trip. And keep in mind that these are, you know, full-on science-minded people, very practical, not prone to superstition. And for them to come back, Jeannie was completely beside herself. Like, she just couldn't wait to tell me, and she was kind of still kind of buzzing. Um, because what happened later on when they traveled back through that area is that they went back, and there were two more graves at this point without headstones on them and there were just holes in the ground and they were dug right next to the, the previous two. You know, don't you think that certain areas lend themselves to scary stories and superstition and weirdness and a lot of my time in the mountains, I've lived out here for 25 years and and I've poked around a lot of deep and dark nooks and crannies of the range and really considered myself to be a Cascadian. And, you know, one of the things that kind of tends to keep me on my toes and freak me out more than, you know, exposure or technical difficulty or weather or anything like that are these kind of low elevation, um, deep, dark, secluded areas where you know, all sorts of stuff goes on. Vietnam vets kind of hunkering down for year after year, people cooking meth and leaving little Nalgene bottle bombs in the middle of the woods. You know, I've been back and poked around in that area since, and it, I'm always on edge and I'm always kind of wondering what weird thing I'm going to see next and but I honestly feel like I've avoided it. <sighs> Dollheads, graves, and long-haired phantoms? Those tales are enough to make me think twice about going out into the woods ever again. Special thanks to Sarah Porterfield and Jeremy Allen for sharing their tales. And thanks to everyone who submitted a story this year. From spooky to goofy, you didn't make the picking easy. Music today from Black Buddha, Mind Movie, John Carpenter and Alan Howarth, Dan Manigan, Reigns, and This Will Destroy You. You can find links to download the songs and information about the artist at dirtbagdiaries.com. Support for the diaries comes from Patagonia. They're continuing to redefine business as usual with their Common Threads initiative. It's a pledge made between Patagonia and you to reduce, repair, reuse, recycle, and reimagine gear. From producing quality products and repairing it, to offering sales of used gear on eBay, Patagonia is taking steps to reduce our collective footprint. Take the pledge at patagonia.com. Support also comes from Kuat Racks. They've been working hard at reimagining bike racks and are rolling out new products this fall. From the NV core to the Vagabond gear basket, check out their latest at kuatracks.com. Additional support comes from New Belgium Brewing. Follow your Foley. So while Fitz has been out on the road, collecting new stories, he temporarily handed over the reins to me. But he'll be back next time. Till then, I'm Becca Cahal, and you've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. <laughs>